Hi, I'm Gigi, and this is Driven Minds, a Type 7 podcast. Season 2, Episode 1. I want to take a second to revisit why we are doing this. We tend to put successful people on pedestals. And whether or not you think you're influenced by what they do, what they say, or what they don't say, it does have an impact. And I actually thought that I wasn't particularly impacted by cultural icons until Lena Dunham. I will never forget when I saw an episode of her HBO show called Girls, in which she depicted what it looks like to have OCD, accurately and totally unapologetically. She didn't glamorize or aestheticize it the way that they would in a Hollywood movie. I mean, she acted out her OCD rituals in the way they actually happen. There is nothing glamorous about having OCD, let me tell you. OCD rituals are exhausting and time-consuming. They honestly ate up hours of my day. And I don't know, the fact that this woman is able to do all that she does while struggling Honestly, it made me feel like I could do my thing too, in spite of my OCD. So I started this podcast because when all we see are the highlight reels, it is so easy to believe that everyone else is living better, cooler, and more worry-free lives than we are, you know? But that's only half the story because the human experience is the biggest, most beautiful mess. And I hope that by hearing the stories of struggle from those we admire will help us accept our own doubts, anxieties, heartbreaks, failures, and everything else that makes us human. So if you ever heard our very first episode, season one, episode one, you listened to a conversation with the iconic movie producer, Brian Grazer. And to tie this whole thing in a sweet little bow, we wanted to kick this season off with Brian's partner at Imagine Entertainment, the director, Ron Howard. So Ron started acting at the ripe age of six on The Andy Griffith Show in the 1960s. And then he went on to play one of the leads in a show called Happy Days as the Zupa Zupa cute, Richie Cunningham. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) Then Ron switched to directing, where he made some of the most iconic movies of the last 40 years, like Apollo 13, Frost Nixon, Da Vinci Code, A Beautiful Mind. So far, he's had 41 Oscar nominations and nine wins. So my favorite fun fact I discovered while researching Ron was that he was the voice, like the narrator of my favorite Emmy-winning show, Arrested Development, which he also executive produced on his free time because that is just a regular Wednesday for Ron Howard. Ron has garnered a reputation as being the nicest guy in Hollywood. And honestly, after our conversation, I can totally see why. He was so present. He's curious. He cares. He listens which is really not always the norm with someone of his stature. I talked to Ron while he was in quarantine in London, editing his next movie about the 2018 cave rescue in Thailand. That event you most definitely saw in the news is now a movie. And having Ron's trajectory, he will likely add this movie to his list of Academy Awards. So here it is, the first episode of our second season, my conversation with Ron Howard. We 
are both USC film school dropouts. Go us. <laughs> Clearly, that worked wonders what happened? for you. What, what happened to you? You should have finished. Come on. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I just. My daughter not. Bryce. Yeah. My daughter Bryce left NYU. She was a little bit like she was drafted oh. into the pros. Started acting. Still had about a year to go. Always wanted that degree and worked her way back at and got and just last year got her degree. Uh, oh wow! Uh, okay. So, you know, I'm not I'm not suggesting that you need to do that, but for her, it was interesting that she uh, had a perfectly fine career, still yearned that piece of paper and that sense of completion, and did it. Well, Ron, you can also go back to USC Film School and <laughs> and finish your degree. You know, I'm sure you have a lot to learn, so it's always an option for you. You know, I got the I got the honorary one. It's just a nice shortcut. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you left USC so you could be on Happy Days, right? Yes, I left, and for a while I tried to do both, uh-huh. and I even talk about this a little bit. My brother and I have a memoir coming out called Boys on HarperCollins. It's coming out in October, and it's only about our childhoods. It's just okay. about what it was like to be kid actors uh, in, mm. the, in the 60s and 70s. And I talk a little bit about, about that decision because I was so mm-hmm. thrilled to be in the, in the film program at USC, and, uh, and yet I kept being drawn away for other roles, movies and things like that. And I would, you know, I'd cut down my units and try to keep going and come back. And even the first season of Happy Days, I I stayed at SC on a reduced schedule. Uh And I realized I was just showing up kind of for finals, midterms and finals and reading the book. And uh oh, oh, no. Oh, this is, is this their test? I think they said this is their test. It works. It, It works. Okay, unless they <laughs> unless they start blaring that we have to evacuate it's the building. It's okay. We don't want you burning. Anyway, I realized that I not only was I not getting any sleep, uh, but I was paying a lot of money for essentially reading the textbooks and just trying to get, right. you know, trying to get credits. As a child actor, speaking of that, I mean, from the Andy Griffith Show to Happy Days, everyone in America recognized you by the time you were like 1920. And we've seen so many times how a childhood in the limelight can really negatively impact one's development for mm-hmm. lack of a better yeah. Yeah. <laughs> explanation. Yeah. And why do you think that you emerged so unscathed? A lot of it has to do with, you know, very specific circumstances that you sort of have to, you know, recognize as good fortune. Right. My parents also were extremely gifted in their own way they they just had great instincts about it especially especially my my father uh rance it's another thing we talk a lot about in in uh, in the book clint and i acknowledging the difficulties of what they you know had to try to achieve right for for us because it wasn't a plan yeah they they didn't say geez we could use the money let's put the kids to work uh right. it, it was it was a thing that evolved that they recognized was an opportunity and a learning opportunity. And they were in the business and loved it, mm-hmm. but they just recognized we had an aptitude. Right. And we seemed to like it, which I did. And, you know, I, I always enjoyed it. I, I thought it was great. And I'm very grateful for having had that opportunity. But it's it's treacherous territory for a, for a lot of reasons. And, and part of it is that um, child actors m- make an impression at a certain age, with a certain look, with a certain sound. Mm-hmm. And that that changes very dynamically. Right. And, and so it's sometimes it's difficult for audiences to adjust to that. Sometimes it's 
directors feel like, well, if I cast this person, everybody's going to just look at at him or her and just think of this sitcom or think of- Right, like as you, Richie Cunningham forever. Yeah, yeah. And that's valid. I, that's That's understandable. I think it was one of the things that kind of compelled me to want to move behind the camera. Right. I think it's more my nature to be in a leadership role and a role of responsibility and not the spotlight per se, because I don't, I don't really have a performer's personality. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, you know, around the age that you're talking about, I had enough objectivity to sort of look at my work mm. and dream and visualize what I thought I could do as a filmmaker and the kinds of films that I could perhaps aspire to make and maybe materialize some of that, maybe achieve some of right. that. And I felt like I had a, a chance to be better as a director than I could ever be as an actor. But that's the part that is so inspiring to me because when you 180'd your life, hmm. you didn't have that much evidence that you could direct, right? Because so much of your life had been in acting and it's so hard as it is mm-hmm. for anyone to totally change course in 180 of their life, whether it is from acting to directing or going from a fluorescently lit cubicle nine to five to starting your own muffin shop. And <laughs> it's so hard for us to believe in ourselves, yeah. not to mention you had people actually doubting you, yeah. if I remember correctly, right? I mean, there were people saying that it would take a decade for you to actually make the switch, that you couldn't do it, that you had something good. Yeah. Why would you mess it up by trying something new? Why did you believe in yourself? When nobody else did. <laughs> well, a few people did. A few people did believe in me, and they were important to me. Okay. You know, the actor Henry Fonda mm-hmm. and, a, and another director named Bob Totten, who I worked with on a, on, a, on a Disney project, and my brother worked with a couple of times. And these, okay. these were really strong, thoughtful guys who, who, you know, had conversations with me where they were basically saying, you know, I think you should pursue this. Right. I think this is something— that if you, you know, that you can do. And they were observing the way I went about my work on a set. Mm-hmm. They could see what I was interested in. They could re- register that I was asking a lot of questions that must have been good questions, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the right kind of questions to be asking. Right. But, you know, there was no real evidence. I made a couple of shorts. I didn't win any Academy Awards or, or have any short films going to the Cannes Film Festival. But... I'd been around it mm-hmm. and I just had a burning desire to pursue it. And I finally had an opportunity to uh, to try it. It's not really correct to portray this as some kind of radical 180. Okay. The most radical thing was when I left Happy Days and I walked away from a lot, a lot of money because I wanted to 100% pursue directing. But by that time, I had succeeded a bit as a director. Mm-hmm. I wasn't an A-list movie director at all. That came later with, you know, my association with Brian Grazer and 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 what we could do together. Right. That was what was kind of magical about that. Even before there was an Imagine Entertainment, the, there was this chemistry that really, you know, achieved a lot. Right. So that was kind of courageous because, you know, yeah, very. and I'm glad I made that leap and trusted that. But I think the other thing was for a number of years, Mm-hmm. to be putting it out into the world that I I wanted to direct, to have the gumption to actually say it. And then uh, and, 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 and then you'd see everybody kind of react in a very patronizing way, nine times out of 10. And you'd feel that. 
but I use that as fuel. Ah, there you go. But I also did a lot of work. So I wrote a lot of scripts. I made a lot of short films. They weren't great, but I made them. I finished them. Mm -hmm. And I became a kind of guy, I redefined myself before I had evidence of it. You know, I did have a job. Right. I had a good paying job, you know, a high profile one. But I didn't see that as my future. I didn't see that as a defining path. I just sort of projected myself into this other place and that I was going to do it. Right. Now, if the first film hadn't worked at all, I probably would have been the end of it. And I knew that. But you've got to take your shot. It wasn't even the shot that I dreamed of. It wasn't like a, it was a Roger Corman low budget car crash movie. You know, I mean, it's not something that anyone's going to hand you an award over. But still you did it. It got me through it. It was a great step. And so I did it in building blocks. I didn't have a giant leap. Right. By the time Night Shift and Splash came along, I had the addition of Brian, his energy, his creativity, his taste. But I also had made one feature and three television movies. And I felt tremendously confident. Um, in terms of knowing I could tell this story. Even with the confidence and seeing your vision come to life on screen, in order to get any movie made, you have to be so resistant to the word no, right? I mean, from a city saying no to a location to an actor saying no, and going up against a no is so difficult. I mean, I realize how much I stop or accept no, and I feel to some extent we're all conditioned from childhood to kind of accept the finality of a no. Mm -hmm. And in order for you to be here, for you to be Ron Howard, means you must have been challenging the word no from the very beginning. So how did you learn not to stop when someone said no and let them dissuade you? Well, I don't know. I mean, I I would uh, question the no. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I could turn people around. But sometimes in understanding why they were saying no, I could actually learn how to perhaps get a yes out of someone else. Perhaps not that person. If I could extract from them and not just lose my temper or or be shattered, if I could get some sense of, you know, what's the rational thought behind the no? Right. I could determine that it's not rational. It's just wrong. Mm -hmm. And that Uh would fuel me in a certain kind of way. But in other ways, you could sort of say, well, They, for example, began to realize that studios were not really interested in me directing a feature film for them because they knew that I was under contract for Happy Days Mm -hmm. and that I was really only available to be exclusive to a movie about four months a year. Now, that was fine for doing a low-budget indie movie or a TV movie, but not to do Night Shift, not to do Splash. So part of my reason for leaving was that I needed to say, I am available. Right. I've chosen to be available. I have this experience behind me and now's the time when I'm available. Right. So hearing those no's, I began to understand why. Um, The other thing was that it was hard to get cast members for my movies, stars, because they didn't quite trust a guy coming up out of sitcoms until I began to really prove myself. And that was a big thing where Henry Winkler did me such a solid Uh by agreeing to star in Night Shift Uh because that movie was a script that the studio liked, but we weren't getting the cast. Mm. Uh, When Henry stepped up and said he would star in it at a moment when he was, uh, you know, had, uh, you know, a lot of heat, that meant that we could get a pre-sale from a network 
And for the studio, that became a safe bet. So, you know, it's uh, that relationship and friendship really, you know, paid huge dividends there. What was the most difficult project that you kept getting no's but persevered anyway? Mm. Well, I've got a pretty high batting average of getting things done, and so does <laughs> Brian Grazer. And together, we've, you know, um, lots of projects where I wasn't getting the casting that I wanted. And so many circumstances where the individual I wound up with, I no longer could even imagine doing it with the other people. But right, it were, right. you know, they were the the names that were a little bigger or the person that looked like at one point everybody thought that Apollo 13 should be Kevin Costner because Costner looked so much like the real Jim Lovell and he was a huge action mm-hmm. star and a dr- dramatic actor at that point. And Tom was, Hanks was still thought of more comedically. And yet both Brian and I believed in the idea of Tom and his love of space. And, you know, I can't imagine anyone else eclipsing his performance or elevating the movie uh, in a more lasting way with all respect to Costner and four or five other people who were right. ahead of ahead of Tom Hanks. So that really worked out beautifully uh, in in the end. I did some digging in cyberspace and I found your USC Film School commencement speech from 2002. Uh, and in it you spoke about struggles that future filmmakers are likely to go through in their careers, but it also relates to humanity as a whole, to be honest. And I want to read you a line from it. Okay. You said, I know that somewhere along the line you will feel tremendous insecurity. I mean deep neurotic insecurity. You cannot avoid feeling like a failure. Mm-hmm. And the words neurotic insecurity hold a very special <laughs> place in my heart because that is really the, the beat of my drum. But, yeah. you know, you you come across, and I think you know this, your reputation as this calm, cool guy. And it is such a wonderful reputation <laughs> to have, right? Because you associate directors with having these just outbursts on set and these just outrageous moments of hating yeah. everyone and everything. And right. But you're so the opposite, Ron. So I'm curious what you meant by neurotic insecurity. Well, you know, it is when you're, you're starting to respect and give a lot of weight to phantoms, mm-hmm. phantom fears, you know, mm. but it's unavoidable because there are a lot of things that you should fear. Um, what was and, your biggest you know, phantom de- fear? Oh, you know, that I'm just uh, mistakes, that you're making mistakes, mm-hmm. about, you know, and that you shouldn't have made. And you keep beating yourself up over over decisions. And, of course, you make a lot of decisions. Some mm-hmm. of them can be pretty bad uh, and prove to be bad. Right. Uh, it's not just that you thought it was bad and it turned out to be all right. That's okay. That's that, that's a good outcome. What if, what if you thought you were right and you were wrong? Mm-hmm. So you begin to learn that there's this possibility of really disappointing your collaborators, disappointing yourself and hurting your project, you know, and that just kind of goes with the the territory. But, you know, as they say, courage is not about, you know, not having fear. Right. It's about recognizing those fears and facing them uh, anyway. Right. So I've always felt like the idea of trying to psych yourself out and sort of say, don't, don't let the negative thoughts in. I think there's something to it, but a part of me always feels like, nope, Bring them in, put them on the table, shine a bright light on them, mm-hmm. you know, think them through and see how real they are. Totally. And make sure they're not phantoms. 
I mean, the more we try not to think about something, the harder and stronger it comes back until we have no choice but to face them. Yeah. I do think that you need to be careful about what you articulate. And I sometimes I decide decide to to sort of run at the mouth about my fears in in the most inner circle. Right. And I don't think that's constructive. Maybe it helps me. Maybe I'm maybe it's soothing for me, but I don't I don't think it's uh, I think that's a big giant waste of time. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm in therapy. So I make someone listen to all of my fears for yeah. uh, two, two times a week. Good, good work. Good work. Thank you. <laughs> After one of these days on set, do you need to unwind or how are you at compartmentalizing and kind of shutting off after a day of just obsessive mm-hmm. stimuli of all kinds? Not too good at shutting off. My wife would say not too good. Um, but I pretty much just crap out. I don't need much time to unwind. I probably mm-hmm. just need to go to sleep. Um, Can you sleep it, easily? Yeah, I fall asleep very easily. Uh-huh. Um, when I'm in the process, if you know, if I wake up to go to the bathroom or something like that, uh, a few hours into the night, which you know, at my at this point in my life happens most nights. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sometimes it can be really hard to get back to sleep because I'm rested enough that the wheels have started really spinning about the next day. And, um, and cause there are always these variables and I feel like it's my job to anticipate them as best I can along with my team, first assistant director and everyone else, but I don't rely upon them. I, I do my own kind of ongoing analysis to try to buy time. I'm always trying to buy space so that when a good creative idea comes up or something bogs down and requires more attention that, you know, it's not a crisis for the production. We, you know, we have the space to accommodate that. And I think you earn that by moving quickly when you can and by being efficient uh, whenever possible. When you mentioned a creative idea coming up, where do you get them? I mean, a lot of people go for runs. My best ideas come when I'm taking a shower for some reason. Yeah, showers Um, are great. Showers are really great. Is there a place that you feel more inspired than others or peeing? Any? Peeing works. Uh, I love it. I, I, if somehow, I don't know why, uh, but- uh, The release. Uh, yeah. uh, it's uh, a little eureka moment, <laughs> exactly. midstream, so to speak. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, I mean, if I'm working a problem, it's it's usually, it's certainly a quiet moment when I'm not intentionally thinking about it, that, that some answer mm-hmm. pops up. So it's about asking the questions and then at some point an answer comes up or often I'll agonize over a question and get to the mm-hmm. set and find out it's not, it's not even the right question, unfortunately. So I, I try mm-hmm. to make sure I'm determining which areas to explore, you know, or, you know, I'll put the question to the collaborators right? and, uh, and I've thought it through and all the permutations so I can pretty well lay the options out on the table mm-hmm. and let them see, say, you know, door number three um, right. sounds right. And, yeah. you know, that's helpful. We did an episode with Brian and he explained how he handles his issue with social anxiety and these tricks that he's come up with to navigate social situations. And I'm not sure if you know this one, but you probably do. But before he goes to a party, he memorizes three facts. So he never runs out of things to say. And I'm <laughs> So I'm curious yeah. if you have any social anxiety or 
if you're even out and about in non-COVID times or if you're more of a homebody? My wife, Cheryl, and I are kind of homebodies, definitely introverts. So we aren't out. We're also, you know, socialization is a really great thing. It's stimulating. It can be professionally meaningful from a networking standpoint. Sure, mm-hmm. I, I get out. I do that. Mm-hmm. And I do have a, a social anxiety to, to an extent. I also have the advantage of, you know, a long resume and people know who I am and I don't have to prove a lot. I think, right. I think Brian's, he's in a different part of the business right. and he's also trained himself. He doesn't have to have social anxiety now. Everybody wants to talk to Brian Grazer, but that's <laughs> probably why he's a successful individual is that he still feels he has to prove something. He has to contribute something. He doesn't want to be a boring guest. Right. Uh, for me, you know, my, my biggest problem is literally just showing up. It's, uh, well, it, well, it's very easy for me to find a lot of reasons not to go to something. Yeah, <laughs> and, <same>. uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, my wife, Cheryl's kind of the same, unless we're talking about dear friends or, you know, something like that. If it's work related, I have no problem. I'm there. Mm-hmm. But if it's, if it's just hanging out or something, you know, I, uh, I can definitely talk myself out of it. Uh, Brian's good for me that way. If we're in the same city, He'll say, come on, no, you got to go. And it's good for me. It's good for me to uh, uh, get out there in the world. And, uh, you know, I might not stay that long. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I generally, it's like anything. You, when, you, when you sort of face those trepidations, nine times out of 10, you're really glad you did. Right. And you've come away with something. I'm not phobic about it, but not just because you, you, you overcame your reticence. But, you know, you meet great people and you have a conversation you didn't expect to have and, uh, and, and all of those things. But a lot of that comes from feeling that you're going to be judged. Mm, like totally. when I was trained, when I was sort of transforming out of, uh, you know, basically being a TV, a child actor into a different world, I was invited to some real A-list parties. Like I remember one time I was invited to this party by one of the producers of Happy Days who said, this is going to be great for you. I mean, he knew how much I wanted to be a filmmaker. It's going to be Jack Nicholson. It's going to be Robert Town, the great screenwriter. You know, Milos mm-hmm. Foreman, your favorite director. They're all going yeah. to be there. And I panicked and did not go. Really? Did not go. And to this day, I regret not having an evening where I could have just heard Milos Foreman talk about films or, or, or anything he wanted to talk about. So, you know, there definitely were were times where I just chickened out. And I, uh, you know, I regret every one of those. You do. Yeah. I, I, my advice to, you know, to anyone who asks, it would, would be uh, find the time. Right. Find the time. If you're still getting your work done, don't use it as an excuse to not hit, meet your deadline. That's always kind of comes first, uh, right after family. Family's the only reason to miss a deadline. Agreed. Now, showing up is really tough and it's assumed that everyone can do it anxiety free, but it is so anxiety inducing to be somewhere that is new. And I'm curious why you did end up chickening out on that Nicholson Foreman. I think I felt like I really didn't fit in. You know, I think I sort of prejudged my right. the validity of my presence there or that mm-hmm. I would be iced out and it would be really obvious. I didn't give myself the the chance mm-hmm. to, you know, have that experience of, of, of those kinds of conversations. But I was a, a little bit that way. And I think a lot really? of it was the sort of growing up um, as a kid actor and feeling 
as an, that I was an outsider. It's an, another thing that Clint and I both write a lot about in, in the book, uh, boys, um, the boys, which is what our mom always called us, the boys. Um, and, uh, here's a story. I like, I played a lot of sports, played a lot of Mm -hmm. basketball. I'm only five foot nine and, you know, not very fast. So there was no chance I was going where anywhere with this sport, but I was good enough to play, uh, at a high school level, Mm -hmm. but on the B team, not the varsity, right? but I was a starter and a good player. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, co-captain of my of my team, but not the varsity. And once or twice, I went and scrimmaged with the varsity, and they smoked me. And it was I couldn't get a shot off. They were blocking my shots. They were stealing, you know, stealing stealing off my dribble. It was bad. And one of the other guys from the B team said, "Well, you just got to keep going back." And that's what he did. He kept going and playing. As long as I let you play, play. And I didn't, because if I played with my level guys, I I could smoke them. It was pretty. Right. It, it was pretty fulfilling. But the next year, I didn't make the varsity, and he did, because he put himself in that position. And so it's one of those little life lessons that uh, you know that you that you pick up along the way. I forgot about it when I didn't go to the Warren Beatty, Jack Nicholson, <laughs> you know, Milos Forman uh, party. Yeah. I mean, listen, though, it sounds like imposter syndrome, right? Like doubting your validity, doubting your value. When if you were invited to that party, everyone obviously believed that you should be there, but you're the only person not believing it is you. (laughs) Yeah. Which is what I try to tell people, you know, when they they ask about how difficult the business is, you know, how many no's that you face and, and all of that. And one piece of advice I give is just don't you define your validity, Mm-hmm. The world is happy to do that for you. Yes. You know, yes. you keep putting yourself out there because you don't know when you'll have the breakthrough. Right. And that the no will be a welcome in. Yeah. Or, or maybe why don't we give it a shot? And then you succeed there and, and, and next stop, you know, you're among the first they call. Mm-hmm. But hey, we, we all go through it because uh, it's also a very public business. Mm-hmm. It pays really well because part of the fun of it. Mm-hmm is that the people participating in it can be evaluated. Yeah. It's part of the fun. There's a gossipy side of who's up, who's down. Mm -hmm. So mostly it's about the work. Mostly it's about the tangible result and the talent and the effort. Mostly. Yeah. But there's this other factor that's undeniable that is about being judged. And you sort of have to recognize that's partly why it pays well. Right. And um, I was talking to one time Pat Riley, who used to coach the Lakers, then the Miami Heat. Now he's one of the owners of the of the uh, Miami Heat basketball team. And whenever we see each other, we feel like we have something in common because he began coaching uh, for the Lakers, having been a player and a broadcaster. He then became a coach mm-hmm. about the same time that Brian and I made Night Shift. Mm. So we both kind of moved to this other level at roughly the same time. And uh, and we like to talk about leadership and what it means to work with people. And, and, and uh, you know, I haven't seen him in, in, in some years now, but it's always very comfortable and fun when we, when we, uh, when we connect. And um, he told me once, he said, you know, part of the job is that, that the media gets to say stuff about you. They get to criticize you. That's part of the, yeah. that's part of the territory and you have to feed the beast. And the minute you're, intimidated by that or afraid 
to feed the beast, you're not really doing your job. You're probably in the wrong field now. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember a couple of times when I had some real disappointments. I'll tell one story. I was doing the movie Ransom, which starred Mel Gibson. Mm-hmm. And that year, Mel Gibson had Braveheart, uh, which he had directed and starred in, which was in the award season shortlist. Mm-hmm. And I had done Apollo 13, which was also award season shortlist. And we were having a great experience working together. We got along great. Uh, Teased each other a little bit about awards and whatnot. But um, when the nominations came, both movies were nominated for the same um, number until we got to the director category. And Mel got a nomination for an Oscar and I didn't. Everybody thinks I must have been nominated for that movie. I won the Director's Guild for that movie, Mm -hmm. but I was not nominated for uh, an Oscar. One of the few times that uh, the film's nominated for Best Picture and the director isn't happened to me. Well, we were doing a scene that day, and the media had to come down to interview both of us. And I remember thinking, God, well, Mel, thankfully, we get along great. We've become very friendly. We're, We're fine but this is just an awkward situation. And and Pat Riley's words just echoed uh, in mm-hmm. my ears and memory. You got to feed the beast. Mm-hmm. And so that day I was proud of myself because I, I pretended like I was a coach more than I was a director. And I faced the mic and the mics and the reporters and then later some TV cameras and did my job and talked about it. You know, so ultimately it was a kind of a shitty day that I still feel like I kind of navigated well. But criticism is so tough to deal with still. I mean, on one hand, I love getting honest criticism. On the other hand, I hate hearing the honest criticism. For example, like the first time I ever podcasted, I asked friends for feedback and they said that it sounded like I was reading the first couple of questions. And the truth is that I 100% was reading the first couple of questions (laughs) because I was so goddamn nervous. So I was just like truly reading it. Nothing improvised about it. Right. But I hated hearing that feedback, you know, and it it still hurts so much to hear. So I'm curious how you you weathered. (laughs) It's good you ask. I mean, well, some people don't have the guts to ask, you know, and uh, and and their their learning curve will be uh, steeper. You know, what's lousy is the unsolicited. But that's again, what I was going to say. It's like you know. you've got trolls criticizing you unprompted. <laughs> it's like, how do you handle this? <laughs> well, I have pretty thick skin and I, I try to look at it collectively. Mm-hmm. So in terms of that unsolicited noise, whether that's the rotten tomato ratio yeah. or troll or maybe they're not trolls. They might just be people, you know, mouthing off. They may not, they might not just be gaming me. They might really mean it. Right. So what I try to do is look for look for some consensus that I can really use. Mm-hmm. So the individual, you know, who knows who that person is, uh, unless it's a critic that you particularly follow or something like that. You know, right. Who, who knows what their sensibilities are? Sure, you wish they loved it and loved you and said wonderful things, but, you know, it's, it, it's hard to put a lot of weight on it. When you start to see a pattern, then you can say, hmm, what are they seeing that maybe I'm not or that others aren't? Mm-hmm. Then you bump right. into this other thing that you have to be careful about because uh, you may be overly concerned about what is really a minority opinion mm-hmm. because they're the ones who are willing to speak out. That's a certain type of personality. 
you know, if you're in media and, you know, there's data out there, you also recognize that there are a lot of other people who are quite satisfied mm-hmm. who may not be speaking up, but they're speaking up with their their dollars or their time, mm-hmm. you know, they're, right, right, they're, right. they're, they're watching and responding and, and supporting. And so you have to be careful not to distort your, your thinking too much. And suddenly you're, you're chasing what is, what is not really your audience. Right. But I think if you can keep your wits about you and uh, take it with a grain of salt and put it into the right kind of context that, you know, there's stuff to be learned. And it's, uh, it doesn't always feel good, but maybe it's a motivator. Like Michael Jordan was kind of famous for taking uh, sports writers' headlines and digs or comments from other players and taping it up on his locker just because he would— Really? He'd want to read that right before he went out to play because it was hard to stay motivated, you uh. know, for 81 games and then a playoff season. So, you know, sometimes I'll read three or four comments about me and right. it'll sort of make me— you know, want to go back and double check the, the screenplay that I'm working on or or, right. or or look at that script from a slightly different perspective. Right. And at least ask the question, you know, what would they think of this? Right, right. Is that useful to analyze? Sometimes, mostly it isn't, but sometimes it yields some little breakthrough um, idea. anxiety because, I mean, studies have shown that millennials are the most anxious generation. And I tested this theory by reflecting on my baby boomer dad, because growing up, I felt he never understood where I was coming from when he witnessed my anxiety. Because when I'd come to him with like my bucket of problems, his response was always like, everything will be okay. You know, everything will work itself out. And I was like, What do you mean? Like this kumbaya advice is not coming from someone who has ever had anxiety in their life. So I'm kind of curious as a fellow baby boomer, are you also one of these enigmatic non-anxiety people (laughs) or do you experience it? I experience it. I definitely experience it. And I've, and I've always quietly had, you know, like friends of mine will characterize me as quietly neurotic. But they also think I'm cool under fire and durable and, you know, and and sort of uh, resilient and those those kinds of things as well. So I am my wife, Cheryl, has a degree in psychology and she 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 finds she says you're a very unique blend because Mm -hmm. you you shape shift around Mm. emotion and um, interpretation in in ways that, you know, she feels is kind of unusual. So I am. On the one hand, I think I'm super empathetic and also sensitive to uh, other people's feelings, and including criticisms, uh, and definitely feel, you know, a fear of failure, even at this point in my life, and that I'm supposed to try to control things. Sometimes I mm-hmm. feel that if, if I'm not going 100 miles an hour, that I'll be doing four miles an hour, that there's no, there's sort of no, no in between. But I'll share something with you that may go coincide a little bit with what your dad is saying and that I've tried to build on over the last 10 or 15 years. This guy that I, that I knew, he was actually a, um, a homeopathic practitioner mm-hmm. and very interesting guy. He was also a musician. He was also like a um, sort of a mechanical engineer, just one of these uh, gifted 
individuals, but kind of eccentric, kind of an eccentric mm-hmm. guy. And uh, he did a, he took a blood test one time and looked at it and he said, oh, your adrenals are awfully low. What do you, what's going on? And I said, well, I'm in the middle of a production, you know, and I think it's particularly difficult and the weather and uh, there's an actor got injured and, and it's a tricky project and the budget and blah, blah. And so I, you know, I probably use my adrenaline. I think I kind of mm-hmm. pump it up. And, and he said, well, Ron, you're, uh, you're 49 years old now. And uh, these numbers aren't good. You're opening yourself up for, you know, for other areas. You're weakening your system. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, he played, used to play, he wasn't ever in a band. He would be a backup guy who would like fill in a lot. And he was so, so he was a professional musician. He just never made it his full-time thing, but right. he did it a lot nonetheless. And he would say, you know, at a certain point, you just know that you can do something. And you know that even if you do it, you won't be able to control everything. So when you acknowledge those those those, those facts, said so you can shift these things out of your emotions. You don't need to fuel it with your emotions. Take it out of your, you know, your adrenal system and your gut and put it into your mind. Apply your intellect. That's going to be good enough. And it was really great advice. And so, um, you know, your dad is probably seen enough that he knows it will be all right. The answers will present themselves. The answer might be kind of un- unknowable at the moment. Right. But there are three or four paths it could follow. Two of them are fine. One should be mm-hmm. avoided. But, you know, he might know that you're already avoiding it. And, you know, things like that. And that it will work its way through. And that, you know, he's probably keeping it out of his emotions and trying to keep it in the intellect. After your conversation with this doctor and he told you this, did you walk onto set the next day in a different spirit or how did that affect the movie? Well, I mean, we got through that film as we get through all the films and I still have tense, tense days, but I've tried to adopt that mentality and that, and uh, you know, a lot of it is, you you know, you pick up little tricks like uh, Mm -hmm. that's a, that's a mantra I use. Another one is when my head is starting to spin, I'll say to myself, what's my job today? And mm. what's my job in the next hour? Right. I can't do deal with everything, but I can deal with that. What is it really? Just be clear about it. Am I supposed to kiss somebody's ass? Am I supposed <laughs> to be tough guy? Am I supposed yeah. to say nothing? What's my job? What's my job? And that helps. You know, little tricks like knowing a little bit about meditation, that if you get Mm. even a little bit good at it and uh, you take 45 seconds to chill, believe it or not, it really works. So as you travel the the road, you know, you can pick up stuff that applies. The the more you can um, feel you have peace of mind, the the happier you're going to be, the happier the people around you are going to be, and probably the more productive you're going to be. I'll give... There's um, uh, a first assistant director who I worked with when I was young, like through the TV movies. He also did Night Shift and Splash and Cocoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a guy named Jan Lloyd. He was sort of ahead of his time. He was kind of a he was kind of a leftover hippie and a, a sort of a new wave enlightenment pursuer. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, yoga and Tai Chi and micro, microbiotics and, and uh, you know, and he was a very progressive uh, guy. And he, like about 20 years older than, than I was. 
And uh, he said, you know, you're a hard worker and that's great. Here's what you're going to see in your life and what you want to try to avoid is you're going to see a lot of really talented people, really talented people dissipate their energies Mm. and it's going to cost them. And we all suffer from this because overwork can be dissipating your energies. It's finding that equilibrium is an elusive thing. I remember him saying, but it's a great goal. And Mm -hmm. if you, you, that's your greatest value system. That's, that's what you're investing always is your energy, right? Your time and your energy. And, uh, I've seen it. And I think that I've been thoughtful enough to be careful not to dissipate my energy, not perfect, but to stay pretty focused. And I've benefited from that. And, uh, and so I kind of have adopted that, that mindset. It also probably means like on set, you don't have to, or you try not to stress over every decision, right? Because you're making like 400 decisions a day that not only affect you and the movie, but the thousands of people that are working on set. And decisions are, at least what I find, the most anxiety-inducing parts of my day. yeah. I mean, like, I have mental paralysis over deciding what I want to have for lunch as if it's some sort of feast or famine situation. So, I mean, <laughs> right. I can't imagine what it's like to have to make all of these snappy, quick decisions that affect people beyond yourself every single day. You must have to have multiple like kumbaya moments. Well, you, like, you know, it's another thing that you learn to do. Uh-huh. And uh, you also learn to say, I learned to say, I don't know. And I'm I'm not sure what do you think. Right. And get some feedback to advance, you know, my understanding of it and then come to an answer. You all, it's crazy. A lot of them are honestly six of one, half a dozen of another. Mm-hmm. And they just need a decision. Right. And you, like you just any thought, decision. Any decision is yeah. the right decision. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you can't go really wrong here. Um, I have another sort of um, uh, policy mm-hmm. and uh, approach, which is, with key collaborators, because I love the collaboration. I, I just, it thrills me. It's satisfying in the way that I don't love necessarily going out and socializing. That's the social part of the work I do that I just love because we're both pulling in the same direction for something, right. you know, and I just get, I get really excited about that. Even when it's sometimes combative and, and you know, can be difficult. Um, I have this theory, I even call it the six of one theory, that if my job is to understand what a decision, what a choice means mm-hmm. in terms of its impact on the scene and therefore the story, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I try to come in with a plan, a shot list, a point of view. So most questions I could answer right, um, and answer fairly well. But when it comes to my interfacing with key collaborators, department heads, could be the lighting people, the cinematographer, could be the, certainly the actors, composers, you know, key people, production design, that sort of thing. And when they come in with a, an idea, mm-hmm. my mind then evaluates whether, does that get us to the place that we need to get to? Mm-hmm. Because if it does, I want to use it. Mm-hmm. And even if it differs a little bit from where I thought I'd ask for or expected us to do, if their idea, you know, achieves the objective in the scene, or, or it might exceed it. I mean, a lot of ideas right. advance things, you know, but if it only meets the objective, use it. 
because now that person's head is in the game. That person knows that when she or he comes up with an idea, I'm open. Right. And it it only fuels, you know, and then and also what I also find is that, that people accept no much more readily mm-hmm. when they know you're happy to say yes. Right. It's, so it takes the ego out of it and it makes it be about a, you know, a communication around an objective. So I love working that way. Sometimes it's a little noisier mm-hmm. and it takes a little bit more time. It creates a kind of static because mm-hmm. I have to think through this. Is it meeting the objective or not? And sometimes that's a hazy. So in many ways, it would be easier to be just a little more dictatorial about it. But around my films, I don't think it would benefit them. Right. I think there are geniuses on the planet who shouldn't listen to anybody. I'm not that. And my projects benefit from that collaborative energy. One last question. Okay. What drives you? Mm. It's the possibilities and also a sense of gratitude that I've been given opportunities, presented with many. I've earned others, but I definitely feel like I've been sort of blessed in my life Mm -hmm. with opportunity, with health, with great relationships. I have a great marriage that's worked. It doesn't dissipate my energies. I've had these opportunities to be really productive and positive and to grow. And I want to realize that potential and maximize it because I have a lot of respect for the medium. I have a lot of respect for audiences. And also, you know, I expect a lot of myself. Mm -hmm. I think that expectation of what I might be capable of that I haven't even yet done is with me still. And I think that fuels me. That, my friends, was Ron Howard. You can follow him at Real Ron Howard and me at Gillian Sagansky. I'd love to hear what you think of the show. So DM me comments, questions, concerns, complaints, if you have any of them. Hopefully you don't. Thought toys your anxieties, what you want from life. Really, anything goes at the Driven Minds podcast. I'm going to go pee and see if I have any inspiration midstream. Until next time. <laughs>